If you like your chicken lumps full of microplastic and your milk full of bleach, you're in the right spot. Quit eating your own food and buy some genetically modified trash today. And ride your motorcycle every day. Moto One Podcast Network. You're listening to Creative Riding, America's best motorcycle podcast. Hey, there's a bunch of asterisks behind that. <laughs> Never mind. We're brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. For more information, head over to patreon.com forward slash creative writing to learn how you can support the show yourself. Now, let's get cracking. Roll on the throttle, blip the brakes, tighten the air cleaner, check the crankshaft, and don't spill your coffee. Thank you, Tobor, for the stupid intro there. Every week he's going to write me a dumb one. If you got a dumb intro you'd like me to say, uh, write in to creativewritingpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, this is Junk. Tobor is out in the garage tied up. He was uh, misbehaving. He attacked the garbage truck today, and we can't have that again. Once is enough, Tobor. No more. Uh, hey, we got a disclaimer on the show. The views and opinions of the participants of the Creative Writing Podcast are those of the participants. Do not affect the policy, position, opinions of Creative Writing 101 Podcast. Never ever, any of our affiliates or respective uh, participants not intended to align anywhere near thinking of the canon writers. I think you heard me say Envia Gusta writers in there. And maybe you heard me say zero DSRX or uh, that kind of looks like you're writing the word Desert X. Are you ripping off the Ducati Desert X but doing it uh, with an electric bike? We'll have to see. And uh, we probably won't be talking about any of that stuff this week. Um, we got too much to cover in this episode. So welcome back. This is episode 281. Officially, it's like 300 and something. But uh, the ones we count, we're just going to call it 281. Um, listen, I just want to tell you, before we even start this uh, week's show, thank you to our lovely patrons for supporting us. If you want to head over to patreon.com forward slash creative writing, you can check us out there, see what we got to offer you as far as, you know, if you want me to, I'll do a weekly thing where I insult you on Patreon. Um, if you want to do that, like instead of roast my bike, just roast me. We can do that whenever you feel like. But uh, a few times a year, we do send out some cool swag. Um, if you're lucky, like Chad Clink was this year, uh, you could win a helmet during uh, Social Slam, or you could submit some cool stories yourself and be a legend among listeners as the submitter of the coolest story they ever ever did here and pass around campfires in the future. Uh, listen, someone else we want to uh, give a shout out to back in Cali, by the way, is uh, our own beloved Chris Wiggins from Field Initiative Knives. If you need a custom made knife in any shape, size, uh, who won't do any shape or size, but check him out. It's uh, Field Initiative Knives. You can find them on Instagram at field underscore initiative underscore knives or uh, wig09 is his racing uh, IG. You can get him there too. He has made knives that have cut other knives in half. So I'm just telling you, you need to slice a tomato. You need to slice a, um, not a tomato, but like a cherry tomato or even these things called grape tomatoes now because a cherry and a grape are two different, right? If you need to slice a grape tomato so thin that it feeds 22 people, Field initiative knife. And uh, conversely, you need to skin a deer out in the field 
field initiative knife. They're so versatile. I've used mine as a screwdriver. I've used it as a pry bar. Uh, I've used it as a box opener. I've used it to skin some animals. I've used my field initiative for many, many, many different things, and it's come in vers- as a versatile tool. Heck, I even used it to extract a sprinkler head once. So there was a stuck down in the ground. So kind of a screwdriver or a... a um, a screw extractor, you know, it was a threaded, it was a threaded pipe and I jammed the knife in there and twisted it out like a screwdriver. It's awesome. Check them out. Field initiative knives. Also earth 911 is a universal resource that helps you find your own shade of green. Earth 911 educates and informs consumers, businesses, and communities to inspire thought and facilitate earth positive consumer decisions. I've been talking about this for weeks now. The earth is important. We only got one until somebody makes a bunch of planet, you know, communities on Mars, then we can trash this one. But in the meantime, I think we should keep this one beautiful. Who wants to live on a whole planet named Utah? <laughs> it looks like Moab on Mars. Anyway, long story short, Earth 911 can help you make small changes, and small changes by thousands of individuals will have a lasting positive impact. Everybody doesn't have to be, you know, John Q. Good guy, but if enough of us are, It'll make ideas uh, that help make less waste. And with topics like business, home and garden, living, learning, much, much more, make earth911.com your next destination. Keep Earth's writing spaces beautiful and bountiful, my friends. Also, what's that? The whole reason Tobor's tied up in the garage? (laughs) Well, not only because he assaulted uh, a garbage truck, but he was also playing in our box of Christmas ornaments. And I said, Tobor... It's not even October yet. Well, it's getting close, but it's not even October yet. Why are you banging through the Christmas ornaments? And he reminded me, listen, the holidays are coming up, folks. And as, as the uh, Christmas season is approaching, it's time to start thinking about getting some presents for all the little good riders in your life. And if you're going to go out and get them socks and helmets and a new PW50, that's great. But if you're not going to, if your kid is too small to ride or they're not ready to ride yet, there's a book that you can get them. And it's uh, Mimi and Moto, Ride the Alphabet. <laughs> How in the world did I do that? Wow, I'm, I am very excited about this uh, book. Actually, I do love this book. Um, and they also have another book called The Adventures of Mimi and Moto. Uh, our friends Nancy and Mark, the creators of Mimi and Moto, the Motorcycle Monkeys, they want you to join their mission to get more children excited about motorbikes. I personally love these books, and I'd like you to name a book right now, a children's book that teaches them about motorcycles. I'll give you a second. Okay, okay. you can't. You can't name another one, right? No, you can't, because there isn't one. Yeah, you might have said, yeah, the mouse and the motorcycle. Yeah, that's about a mouse who rides his motorcycle. It's not about the motorcycle, though. That's like saying, hey, there's this cool motorcycle movie out, and it's called Batman. Batman rides a motorcycle, but it's not a motorcycle movie. Uh, These books are about motorcycles, they are about learning, they are about family, and they are about making children aware of motorcycles, getting them excited about motorcycles, and that's what we need in order to, you know, um, make this lifestyle part of the next generation. So visit mimimoto.com. If you head over to our blog, we've had a link over there forever. And with the holiday season coming up, we they do have some t-shirts. They have onesies, ornaments, plushies, and of course the books. And if you didn't know, they have another book that's going to be released in early 2023. So if you can help them out now, it'll make things a lot faster then. Check it out, mimimoto.com. And, uh, Get some Christmas shopping today that'll uh, help create some future motorcycle riders. And finally, 
uh, our last uh, sponsor of the show this week is Cal Recycle, protecting California's environment and climate for the health and prosperity of future generations through the reduction, reuse, and recycling of California's resources. They cover environmental education, disaster recovery, and the transition from a disposable to a fully circular economy. The reason I believe in Cal Recycle uh, is because they have tips for recycling motor oil, batteries, paints, solvents, coolant, n- automotive stuff. I mean, they have, they have everything, electronic waste. If you're a computer nerd and you don't like motorcycles, why you le- did you stumble onto this podcast on accident? I don't believe so. However, they have a whole bunch of recycling uh, ideas there, and they show you how things may go into a landfill um, but before they go to landfill, they get recycled in all different sorts of ways. And you wouldn't believe what they've been recycling lately. So they're trying to make uh, Mother Earth uh, keep it beautiful, keep you know things that are going to erode the environment out of the environment and things that are going to ruin our, our vegetation and drinking water. We don't want all that stuff in, in the landfill. So before you throw away that battery, before you just toss that can of old paint or the thousand cans of resins that I have in my garage that have probably gone bad since the, the heat waves hit and ruined everything this summer, um, before you just chunk that in the trash, look up CalRecycle ca.gov for more tips on how you might be able to reuse that or donate it in another way. All right, everybody, let's get into this week's show and uh, let's get into some events. All right. The first event that we have on our calendar is MotoFest Coventry. And I don't know when it is now, but it was postponed due to the death of the queen. Uh, So they postponed that. And I have a feeling that they postponed it, and it was a, it was a. Sometimes events get postponed, and you thank your lucky stars. You know what I mean. It's not that you weren't ready, or that you, but it's it's enough to put it off until you're 100 percent feeling it. You know. So with the death of the queen, they have postponed that uh, September 18th, which is uh, last weekend, but it goes. It's it's ending actually tomorrow. Um, is the Variety Adventure Ride in New England, but not New England, USA, uh, New England, AUS. Yes, that's right. In Australia, from Tamworth to Tamworth, uh, the Children's Variety Ride for Charity is ending tomorrow. So I'm pretty excited to hear from anybody that went to that uh, what your experience was. Let us know. Uh, Also, this weekend, Hell on Wheels, Saturday night TT at Paris Raceway in Paris, California. Not Paris Speedway, Paris Raceway. The oldest TT in the West. I don't know. I just made that up. I think they made that up too. I think I saw that on their Instagram. Uh, September 27th through the 30th, the World Finals at Bonneville. Hopefully it doesn't get rained out again. As you know, Bonneville got rained out this year for Speed Week. Uh, Then they came over here to... uh, um, El Mirage Dry Lake, which is just like an hour from me, and that got rained out. So now they're headed back to Bonneville. Hopefully there's not another crazy swamper and they can do the world finals there uh, this year. And uh, go listen to our Bonneville episode. I think it was 278. Uh, go listen to that one. It's a really good episode. Um, and October 7th, SoCal Bike Fest 2022 at San Manuel Stadium in San Bernardino, California. Uh, October 8th, Joe's Mini Bike Reunion happened at CV Park in La Crescenta. CV is, I believe, Crescenta View Park. Uh, also October 8th, um, Clean Desert at Outlet Center Drive down there in Barstow. And they are doing some of this work. They're cleaning up trash. They're keeping uh, stuff out of Mother Nature, putting it into a landfill or a recycling center. And... Uh, 
keeping our keeping our writing spaces clean, just like Earth Nine One One. October thirteenth through sixteenth, Biketoberfest twenty twenty two happened in Daytona Beach, Florida. I almost said California. <laughs> well, Florida looks like California, but uh, it's more humid and less uh, less gear on the riders over there. October fifteenth, the El Camino Vintage Show and Swap Meet happened in Gardena, California. I believe this is uh, it's like the seventy fifth or seventy sixth show. This is going to be crazy. It's going to be fun. And the weather has finally cooled off here, so it'll be nice. Also happened October 15th. If you didn't like the swap meet and the bike show, head up a little bit to Huntington Beach to the Moto Beach Classic. This is a Rolling Sands um, Moto Beach Classic. It's going to feature uh, surfing. It's going to feature bands, music, flat tracking. They might even have drone racing. I just made that part up. I don't know what they're going to have, why they would have that there. But they're going to have a whole bunch of motor-related stuff. Probably going to have Super 73 there doing a bunch of bike stuff too. So check it out if you like the beach beer burgers bikes uh bros babes and bandanas i just uh, threw that last one in there as a wild card there may not be any bandanas there um october 22nd through 23rd born free texas at the yellow rose canyon campground in i'm guessing texas uh wherever that is it's like the biggest state besides alaska i think october 23rd through 28th bmw gs rally is happening in tasmania where the uh, tasmanian devils are from those poor little devils have face cancers my son and i listened to this crazy podcast all about it contagious cancer that's the last thing you need so don't go down there and eat it a Tasmanian devil, just go ride your BMW and just stay on the trails, right? Uh, November 26th, ramming speed. They're having the compact octane and streets of Willow out of the streets of Willow Springs at the International uh, Raceway in Rosamond, California. You heard it here first, uh, folks, or, or you read it on Brady's Instagram. But yeah, that's going to be November 26th, and that's getting us pretty close to December. Uh, if you haven't ordered from Mimi and Moto by December, you're foolish. Get on it now. Don't wait till the last minute to order some plushies and ornaments. Uh, let's take a. Oh, you know what? Last week I actually I did want to mention this. The uh, this um, in a few months, in like less than a month, the uh, the BDR Keep It One Hundred Film Festival is going to be happening. The online broadcast of the best one hundred second films. You still have time to submit for that. Uh, October 23rd is going to be the uh, film festival. And I believe, um, I, I believe you still have time to submit your film for that, but you better hurry. I can imagine with like less than a, well, a, roughly a month left that they're trying to get things lined up for that. Uh, your film has to be a hundred seconds or less must take place on a BDR must be centered around motorcycling and then use royalty free music only. Um, if you'd like some music, hit me up, Junkie uh, Turdman at uh, creativewritingpodcast.gmail.com. I will gladly supply you with an on-the-spot ditty that you can put in your 100-second film. And most importantly, respect the BDR mission to ride right and ride respectfully. Uh, there's a ton of messages from the Moto Camping episode um, on Reddit that I forgot to respond to on the last episode. And... My apologies for that. We'll see if we can get to them at the end of this show. Uh, otherwise, this show is kind of a banger, and uh, it's gonna. I don't want to take too long, so I'd rather just take a little break here and get into this week's show and see if we got time to do another moto camping uh, response. You know, we're going to really milk this moto camping thing. <laughs> Maybe we'll even go moto camping again by the time this comes out. I know I'm going to go camping again for sure, uh, but yeah, maybe we'll go moto camping again. All right, let's uh, take a quick 
quick break. Get right back to the news or right back to the show. This is Creative Writing. Just wanted to give a shout out to all of the listeners in Bentonville, Arkansas, Lucidale, Mississippi, Columbus, Ohio, Centerton, Arkansas, Sydney, Australia, Baxter, Iowa, Rome, Italy, Escondido, California, Los Angeles, California, Donnelly, Idaho, and Uxbridge, Canada. I don't see you on the list anymore, but you popped up there. Hey, Uxbridge, let us know what's happening. You're part of town. All right, let's get into this week's show. And uh, this week's show is called I Did That. I don't know. I grew up in the Midwest. <laughs> I did that. Gas prices, octane ratings, ethanol wars, and Richard Nixon. We've all seen it. It's the spring of 2021. You head to the pumps to fill up your bike, or worse, your huge truck with a trailer full of bikes, and right there on the pump next to the exorbitant price that you've agreed to pay is Joe Biden on a sticker, gleefully pointing to the total cost with the phrase, I did that plastered right next to him. So why did Joe Biden raise the price of gas? And more importantly, how? In a country comprising a free market society and a democratic republic form of government, does the president single-handedly raise the price of a major commodity without the approval of Congress and the petroleum refiners themselves? To understand this and a little more, we have to look at a few different factors and maybe even take a little trip back in time. Luckily, our time machine is powered by hydrogen methane, not gasoline, baby. All right, all right, let's get into the meat and potatoes of it. If we look at the immediate pressures that we've been feeling this summer, and I thought they went away, but they're back. Gas prices are up again. Uh, we can use the most convenient time machine to exist. You don't even need it's our memory. You got one too. So in 2022, inflation became a major talking point in the USA. We started hearing about it around, I want to say January. And inflation sounds like growth, but it's actually the decrease of the purchasing power of a unit of money, right? And sometimes people may want inflation because the value of assets or you know, like property and commodities, that stuff rises. And for this example, we'll keep it simple, right? Like housing prices, cost of living, um, you know, there's rising housing costs right now, which in, which increases the cost of living and drives demands for higher pay wages, which in turn cause higher product and service prices, and so on and so forth. It's a vicious cycle that's as old as money itself. There's always been inflation. In ancient markets, uh, you could see it. The Romans actually had you know well-documented uh, ways they dealt with it. And free markets uh, have always pretty much existed too. And free markets, they don't favor regulation, so it's really hard to say who's allowed to produce, own, and buy property or goods, especially when the demand's high and profits are ripe for the profits are ripe, uh, ripe for the taking. But in contrast, it is a stark reality and blinding truth as to who can afford to buy and own this stuff. And this problem has been recycling around for centuries as well, and it's not confined to the U.S. You may remember back to bike uh, prices the, over the pandemic, motorcycle prices th went thrice, you know, what they should have been. And people were getting stimulus checks. So they, if they were still employed, they could afford that crap. And, you know, a lot, a lot of toys and a lot of stuff bought. I imagine that in the next couple of years, we'll see a lot of that stuff on the market getting sold or getting, uh, confiscated, <laughs> impounded, whatever. But 
that's inflation, you know, and that's, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff, how, how it's been working. And if you weren't fortunate enough uh, to be still employed, that cost of living rise really made the necessity for higher wages so that you could still afford to live. So housing prices and inflation, they're becoming eerily similar to gas prices or the price of whatever colloquial term you have for petroleum-based fuel. We call it gas here. You may call it petrol or gasoline, whatever. Uh, The rises in the prices of these commodities didn't start this year or last year for that matter. Neither did housing. But this recent meme got me thinking about them. And that meme is the Joe Biden, I did that sticker. So let's circle back to January 2020. I know you don't want to, and I know it feels like 100 years ago, even though it was less than, uh, what, 24 months ago? It was less than that. It was like, you know, 19 months ago, 18 months ago. Uh, Circle back, January 2020. We start hearing the news of a mysterious illness having arrived on a cruise ship. Later, it was announced that the origin was a traveler from China uh, the UA, USA and the world, we were unprepared for what was to follow, but it's a scathing reminder of how just like a simple, unrelated problem can turn a whole system upside down. One, one traveler on a cruise ship, boom, two years of chaos, right? And as we learned that it was the SARS COVID-19 virus, we had no idea how severe it could get, but we'd heard of SARS before and we knew that was serious. The Trump White House initially prohibited entry from China starting January 31st. But by March, it was clear that the need for broader strokes was necessary because community transmissions had already happened. Hotspots are starting to pop up all over the country. So on March 16th, federal social distancing guidelines were set for a 15-day period. And that was extended till the end of April when things only worsened. Uh, The Trump administration largely left handling of the COVID-19 pandemic up to the states, which is good. And as can be predicted, states with higher populations and dense metropolitan centers enacted shelter-in-place orders or mask mandates. If you lived here in California, you're familiar with all this crap. In, in hopes of curbing transmission of the disease. We, had, we thought if we just stayed inside for a couple of weeks, it'll die off out in the world. People can't stay inside. You know, it was, it was too tough. The COVID-19 global response has had a few lasting effects that's going to play a part in today's conversation about fuel, believe it or not. So first, due to the shelter-in-place orders, the demand for fuel immediately dropped to extremely low levels. And I can't say zero because online shopping increased enough to make Amazon one of the main sources of domestic shipping in 2020. And as we all know, uh, Jeff uh, Bonobo Benezos got very rich (laughs) during COVID. Was it his fault that everyone's shopping online? No. But it's just a it's just a consequence of of the environment. Daily commuter traffic and domestic and international travel basically dropped to their lowest level in decades. Secondly, the response in other parts of the globe led to logistics problems that were further complicated by massive online shopping and port backups in LA runs on weird things like toilet paper, which we found out like you didn't really need, you know, we never ran out of toilet paper except for at the store where you couldn't get any because everybody was buying it left and right. Like they thought they were just going to start pooping in an insane amount. Uh, there was general supply and demand problems for mostly cleaning supplies and disinfectants and things like that. But the, they began to arise globally 
due in part to public regulation, due in part to public fears, but also illness-related deaths at the ports and in the trucking industry. A lot of port workers here in LA, this is this is just anecdotal from what uh, Longshoreman told me, is that, yeah, there was a lot of sickness down there at the docks. These people are trying to work and do stuff um, in an already dangerous environment, and, and COVID was going through there like crazy. So the docks, uh, the ports, the trucking industry, they're all getting hit as well, and they're like trying to keep this country running. So... A lot of that was happening. Third, an attempt to remain open and keep workers employed, like the service industry, which included education, they all underwent a massive change that reshaped the uh, landscape. And we and we may still be, uh, like this reshaping may be affecting fuel and housing prices today. We'll talk about, you know, that's a whole other podcast. But the change that we're talking about is the work from home movement. So over the last two years, many service industries who don't require in-person workforce, they've emptied their offices or, or reduced them a lot. This has eliminated the need to commute to work anymore. It's allowed workers to move away to other towns or cities or even states that are much more affordable or suit their needs better or you know, long-term goals. And that's, an, that's affecting housing in those cities and states and things like that. It's just a weird thing that's happened Um and it affected the fuel as well. After all these people are moving away and working from home, no need to commute. So fast forward through the longest year in recent history. It's 2021. Joe Biden has just taken office in an already contentious election season. The country is 13 months into a global pandemic that's already caused outrage, uprise, and instability globally. And this 2020 dumpster fire continues to burn into the new year and a new administration. But one thing is different. In 2020, former President Trump signed four emergency spending bills. He enacted the Defense Production Act. He proposed Operation Warp Speed and all these things to fund vaccine research, make tests, masks, and vaccines available available in record time. Thus, already toward the end of 2020 and into 21, I mean, we're right in the middle of this thing, at least here in California, we were still lots of, lots of things happening because of it. Um, but vaccines are becoming available and not and to the general public not just at risk groups anymore um, so that means that there was relaxed health regulations starting to happen already that means more people are getting back to work already more daily life people are trying to find jobs now that were unemployed for like the last 13 months and we had just mentioned that some office workers now they don't have to work they don't have to commute anymore they've they've transitioned home and they're staying there but for everyone else it's gangbusters and we talked a lot now about the events that took place over the last couple of years, but what the hell does that have to do with gas prices, right? Well, imagine that you're a large oil company or a refinery that turns crude oil into automotive fuel. And over the last 13 months, you've been shitting your pants as many urban centers and metropolitan areas basically come to a halt. Um, no one's driving, no one's traveling. Definitely state-to-state travel is almost you know, cut down. International travel has been reduced a lot. The essential workforce is but a tiny droplet from the river of money that you're seeing on a daily basis. Luckily, you have billions in your reserves. And also there's Amazon drivers that we mentioned earlier. They need gas along with all the commercial traffic that's doing all the shipping and things like that, getting the getting things out to the world still. But gasoline is not the only thing that crude oil is used for. Crude oil is a big part of petrochemicals like plastics. 
The massive increase in online shopping during the pandemic has been a boon to packaging and plastic production. And then also remember the COVID tests and test packaging and masks and all that related goods? Those are also petrochemical-based. So even though the demand for gasoline wasn't very high, the demand for oil was still there somewhat. And in 2021, as the world was trying to get back to normal, it's time for the oil companies to get back to business as well. They repeated a trick. The petroleum companies, at least here in the States, and I'm pretty sure all of them, they repeated a trick from the last decade. So if you weren't alive or at least driving in 2012, you may have forgotten the fuel prices from then. But exactly 10 years ago, the national average hit a yearly average high of 3.51 a gallon. That's a yearly high. Daily highs were much higher than that. You know, weekly highs may have been about, but the yearly uh, average for that uh, for 2012 uh, was 3.51 a gallon. Hurricanes, refinery outages, troubles in the Middle East—they were all cited as factors, and it was the highest level since 2008 when the national average for gasoline then reached 3.25. So just you know. 20 cents less, uh, with a one-day high of 4.11 back then. A booming global economy, fears over supply shortages, that drove prices higher then. So if the economy is good and things are great, gas prices up. If the economy's bad and there's trouble in the Middle East and hurricanes and refinery outages, gas prices up. So the oil companies seem to know how to make a buck. And uh, whether whether things are doing good or bad, so they find a way, right? And in, from 2008 to 2012, like the two highest years, the demand for gas had actually dropped by 10%, despite a growing population. And according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, that was you know they were surprised that the population was growing, but the demand for gas had dropped 10%, not insignificant. So somehow, despite increased telecommuting, even starting back then, more fuel-efficient motors and younger people already starting to take mass transit and kind of uh, get away from individual car ownership, probably because back then we also saw tuition prices going up and car prices going up. But gasoline prices found a way to rise in those four years. Gasoline prices kept going up. So fast forward 10 years now to 2022, I've personally seen fuel as high as $8 a gallon this summer with California's average in June being $6.29 a gallon. Uh, heads up, I just looked at the pumps the, uh, this morning. Some of them are back up to like six nineteen a gallon, uh, and you know they give you like a, a discount if you pay in cash, and it's like so weird. Who who carries cash to the gas station anymore? It's like cards, right? So diesel's nearly as much too, adding to transportation costs and playing a role in the rise of the shelf. Uh, you know the shelf price um, of goods at stores is going up, and it's partially, I believe, because of this transportation cost going up to get it there, and diesel being so expensive now. There are many more factors at work in 2022 than there was in 2012. We're just coming out of a global pandemic and a slowdown. We, uh, we do, instead of Middle East tensions, though, um, OPEC right now is limiting supply to keep prices up. The war in Ukraine is another factor with massive sanctions levied against Russian oil exports. And according to the LA Times, the demand for oil in California is outpacing the supply just like housing. So when I said housing and gas prices here in, in California are similar, eerily similar, I mean it. The American Petroleum Institute reported that the January demand for petroleum was the highest since 1963. Did you hear like a bat in here? 
I guess my dog is not going to answer me until Boar's tied up in the garage. So I thought I just heard a ghost fly through here. Anyways, uh, so yeah, the American Petroleum Institute says, hey, this is the first time since 1963 that demand has been this high um, despite a reduced man demand for motor and jet fuels. Not, still not a lot of international flights and stuff being canceled still and still driving is down due to tel- telecommuting and things like that. So the report stated that petrochemicals for medical and packaging plastics as well as truck fuels um, commercial truck and diesel fuels, those were higher. So even though commuting is going down and m- more fuel-efficient vehicles, even especially since 2012 to 2022, um, yeah, there's still prices are going up. The demand for oil is going up. There's also an excise tax and a few other factors like special blends that lead to higher prices here in California in particular. But it's, it's nuts. Um, according to a September 12th, 2022 article on gasbuddy.com, the national average is on a 13 consecutive week dip. Now that was last week. Uh, prices are 29.6 cents lower than last month, but still 52.3 cents higher than last year. So just like 2012, even with massive transitions to telecommuting since the pandemic required it, even more fuel-efficient vehicles on the roads than there was in 2012, things like technology has quadrupled in the last like three years, there's always a way to keep the pump prices up for any reason. So thanks, Joe Biden. I guess one big thing that Biden has going for him is when OPEC resumes production and the war in Ukraine ends and refineries come back online and cooler months mean cheaper blends and all this crap, the prices are going to drop. And then the stickers will be there for Joe Biden to again take credit for something that really he really has nothing to do with. I mean, after all, shouldn't we be blaming Nixon for all of this stuff? Hey, if you want to hear a great story about oil and unleaded gasoline prior to 1970, here's a couple of suggestions. We got the American Scandal podcast, season 19. It was called The Breakup of Big Oil. I think it's uh, five or six parts. And the Past Gas by Donut Media podcast, number number 154, Leaded gas was really bad. They will fill you in on the very beginnings of how the oil industry became a thing in the United States and the fuel industry and the use of leaded gas and all that fun stuff. We might touch on a few things here and there, but we are only going to take our time machine back to 1970. That was the year the AMF took over Harley Davidson. So here we are. I know that that was a terrible sounding time machine. It's really quite quiet and efficient. And I just, I had to do that. I had to make that, I had to make it sound like it was doing something. So anyways, here we are. We're in 1970. Look around. Funky, funky bill bottoms, baby. In 1970, President Richard Milhouse Nixon was looking for a way to fix a slew of confusing, ineffective, and unenforced environmental laws. But even before his nomination in 68, the United States had one hell of a year. 1967, baby. We're going to talk about this year a couple times in this show. 1967 was a transitional year for the country. On the West Coast, the arrival of 100,000 youngins high on life and a couple drugs in the Haight-Ashbury district gave rise to the hippie movement that initiated the Summer of Love. 
It was uh, 1967, Summer Love on the West Coast, Rise of the Counterculture, Psychedelia, Love, Drugs, Acid Rock. Hippies embraced the peace. They protested the Vietnam War. They tuned in, turned off, and rejected authority. They called for social justice in the fight for civil rights, and they also advocated for Mother Earth, which had been a growing movement for a little while, at least, you know, five years. On the East... From Minnesota to Georgia, it was a totally different story. Over 150 race riots took place in what became known as the Long Hot Summer of 67. And by September of that year, 83 people were dead. Millions of dollars of damage had been done. And in some cases, entire neighborhoods been burned down. And in December of that year, the Miami police chief, W. Headley, coined the phrase, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. That sounds like fun times. Sounds like we're in a... freaking time warp some sometimes doesn't it um but as 1968 rolled in and the racial and social tensions were still there still on the rise the hippies left hate ashbury that uh after the summer of 67 they integrated back into the mainstream but they brought counterculture with them also in 1968 the honda cb750 was getting uh getting a little work done to it. It was headed to the States. It was about to kick off the UJM revolution. That's going to be maybe a whole episode of its own. Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. were both assassinated and support for the Vietnam War was at an all-time low. So 67 and 68 sounded a lot like 20 and 21. Uh, Democrats were really divided on the war on the Vietnam War and how to move forward socially after the riots of 67. The South was full of segregationist Democrats who wanted law and order in the black communities and the Democratic uh, Party itself, if you didn't know this, they were pro-slavery in the 1800s and pro-segregation after the Civil War. But by 1967, the rift between the Southern Democrats and the more progressive Democrats finally split the party's ideals and the Alabama's uh, Democratic Governor George Wallace was nominated by the newly created American Independent Party, not to be confused with just an independent. Uh, he was running against Republican candidate Nixon on a segregation ticket. Nixon's running on the Republican ticket, and some weirdo named Humphrey is running on the Democrat ticket. And needless to say, Nixon won. You probably never heard of those other two names, uh, but... Although Nixon is widely known for the Watergate scandal, and I'm not a crook, he was actually focused on resetting the country after these crazy tumultuous years of the civil rights movement, the Vietnam Wars going on, and this counterculture revolution, which he totally despised. I think Richard Nixon was a Quaker, and he was just, all of this stuff was just out of his, you know, mental, mentally he couldn't process counterculture. So he's trying to get the country back together. He worked on reforming several social platforms like welfare and healthcare. But he also didn't ignore the mainstream environmental movements of the 60s. And it wasn't because of hippies, because like I said, he didn't like counterculture. But a book by an uh, envir- environmental scientist that was published in the spring of 62 had kind of set the stage for the back to the earth movement and the realization that land mismanagement and devastating effects to life on earth are actually happening. So Senator Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin actually kicked off the first Earth Day on April 22nd. 
1970, and it prompted Nixon to create the EPA or the Environmental Protection Agency in June of that year. And it also led to the Clean Water Act and the Endangered Species Act and a whole bunch of things that the federal government said, hey, listen, we're trashing this motherfucker. We need to turn around and do something good. So the Clean Water Act, a.k.a. the Federal Water Pollution Control Act Amendments of 1972, uh, that aimed to control pollutants that were put into water sources like rivers, streams, oceans, aquifers, groundwater, things that supplied communities uh, and agriculture with necessary water. And it's the, uh, I think there was an original law in the 40s, 48, something like that. And that's why this is the Federal Water Pollution Control Act Amendment of 72. Because there was already something in place. Like I said, Richard Nixon's just trying to enforce it at this time and make something better. Um, so it, it, it enforced like uh, pollution to mm, permanent waters. And it didn't govern temporary waters like that that forms on Bonneville's Saldero Basin in the wet months when Bonneville is covered with water, that's transient. So it didn't cover anything like that. So they couldn't have protected Bonneville if they wanted to. The Clean Water Act was really, it governed certain industries that were releasing uh, things into the community, drinking water and into farming. Um, Then we end up eating this junk, right? So it kind of governed manufacturing, which was... um, you know, they were putting out a lot of pollutants into the groundwater. It also governed in the industries like oil and gas extraction. What do you know? Because they're getting that stuff out of the ground. It also governed shipping, which is, you know, through the rivers. And uh, we, we do have a lot of rivers and lakes up on the uh, in the Midwest there on the Great Lakes and also on the coasts and through like New York and all that stuff. Uh, all that stuff is, you know, I think the waters on like the Ohio and in Hudson Bay, I don't think you want to go swimming in there because you come out with scales. Um, but anyways, they, they, um, governed waters. And as we learned from the Exxon Valdez (laughs) in Alaska and the Gulf of Mexico oil spills, uh, during the hurricane, I forget which hurricane that was, but that was just, you know, within the last decade, Hey, major accidents are always just a minor action away from occurring. Exxon Valdez, one of the biggest oil spills ever until I think the Gulf spill happened, but that was a ship crashing versus a refinery. So, I mean, that the Gulf spill kind of makes more sense. I mean, you're, that's, you're, you hit it at the pump there, but, um, adjacently the clean air act aimed to reduce many of the same problems faced by the public on land that were coming from the air. So that's what we're going to cover on this week's show. Smog. So smog isn't a new thing in the USA, particularly in LA, Uh, In the 1900s, manufacturing smoke and fumes clouded the skies so much at one point. I think they said in 19, I want to say 1903 or something, people thought that there was an eclipse. That's how bad the smoke got from uh, just, you know, the practices and and the booming city of that day, you know. Uh, Industrial smokestacks, uh, personal burning trash pits and, and, and dumps, burning trash dumps, they all sent this thick, toxic clouds of smoke into the air, leaving residents yearning for sunny skies rather than this thick smoke fog that obscured the sun and choked their lungs. So after World War II, uh, I mean, this has been going on for, you know, 30, 40 years. And after World War II, the city's industrial production and motor fleet grew exponentially, um, It only increased things. And the first picture of smog in L.A. was taken in 1943. 
uh, is awful. You can only see about, I think, three blocks, maybe, maybe less than that. The South Coast Air Quality Management District has a website which lays out the story of the first, quote, gas attacks. And it happened during a heat wave in the summer of 43. Smoke fumes descended on and overwhelmed downtown. Citizens reported burning eyes, a scraping sensation in their throats, difficulty breathing. And initially they thought it was the Southern California Gas Company uh, they were targeted because they were pu- producing butadine for synthetic rubber, I think, to make tires and things like that. And um, But even after they temporarily closed that Aliso Street location, the attack, quote, attacks still persisted. And the Angelinos had no idea what's causing this increasingly menacing smoke fog. But one scientist had it right. The uh, Pasadena Star, which is still in publication, they published a few articles in 1945 written by Dr. H.O. Swartout, who was the county health officer, and he stated that smoke fog, or smog, came from locomotives, diesel trucks, smokestacks, burning trash in, in, uh, in your personal backyard trash burner or at the city dumps, and even noted that the mountain ranges that surround L.A. trapped in the heat and smog in the valley. And as a resident of a foothill community, I can attest to that fact that the mountains, they block wind, they trap heat and particulate matter um, matter in the summer particularly. And anytime there's dust blowing in from the desert, if it doesn't blow over us all the way, it comes down here and it kind of hovers and swirls here. It's, it's crazy. And uh, it's all because of the mountains. It's hotter here than it is down by the beach or like down in LA, the city, all because of these mountains. And, you, and it really does... Uh, a like a smog bank will come up here and just sit next to the mountains because it can't blow away anywhere. Um, So yeah, in 1947, uh, several air quality management districts were formed across uh, the Southland, uh, LA County, as cities and farms were affected by the air quality. And even aviation at the now extinct Monrovia Airport was affected as visibility dropped to about three city blocks. Um, Drivers in the early 50s also often had to pull over on the Pasadena freeway because their eyes teared up so bad. And there wasn't even really freeways then. I mean, this is, it's mostly city streets. It wasn't really a freeway. Uh, I think the freeways started to be built around uh, World War II to get goods transported across the country quickly. So you're talking about city streets being, you know, constantly sitting in stop and go traffic and all the smog, right? So since 1947, the AQMDs or air quality management districts have advocated for banning backyard trash incinerators. They were all for the invention of catalytic converters and automobiles. They're all for reformulating gasoline. And right now they support the zero emission vehicles in the state. California is trying to do that by 2035. Will they ever do it? I don't know, but they're pushing for it. And some of these Early health and climate issues were what led to the development of the EPA 20 years later. So it starts in the 40s, you know, mid-40s, and by the 70s, boom, the EPA is there. And it definitely, I think, is what helped California establish CARB, which is the California Air Resources Board, to help manage the state's specific and unique problems. Um, One of those, uh, the early smog that was in California was unique. And a Dutch chemist came here, his name was Ari Hagen-Smith, and he noted that unlike the sulfur dioxides on the east, uh, like in the east, 
in you're burning coal, you're burning heavy oils in the steel mill, steel mills and things like that, like in Pennsylvania and Ohio, they're burning coal, they're burning oil. California, its smog was a little different. They had another agent that had an oxidizing effect. Um, tire manufacturers and tire sellers out here and autom- automobile retail, uh, you know, dealerships noted that rubber tires rotted faster in in LA, like Los Angeles than anywhere else in the country. Crop leaves on the farms that were adjacent to the city, they discolored, they kind of bleached in the fields. And he determined that the culprit was ozone. He did a couple years of experimenting and he announced his findings in 1952. And ozone was the primary ingredient of smog. Uh, it was created in the atmosphere, actually, by sunlight and the photochemical effects uh, between uh, the reactions that it was creating between these hydrocarbons and nitrogen oxides to create ozone. So California is sunny. You have uh, you know photochemical reactions and heat going on all the time. So yeah, the f- the hydrocarbons and nitrogen oxide. Where was that coming from? Well, it's coming from oil refineries and and the tailpipes of cars, motorcycles, you know, trains, things like that. And we are sitting on a basin of natural tar, right? Uh, if you didn't know, the tar pits are here in, here in L.A. We're, we sit on this basin of natural tar. L.A. was basically a figurative sea of oil derricks in the early 1900s. If you look at shots of parts of L.A., uh, east and south, it's oil derricks. There's tons of oil derricks. Downtown L.A. was there, but like even the beaches had oil derricks. It's crazy to look at pictures of L.A. at the turn of the century. Um, and every once in a while, you'd be walking around um, – You'll be rocking around the the uh, LACMA or the Natural History Museum, and b- there'll just be tar bubbling up in the park, like uh, underneath the ground. And a couple days, you know, the, the city workers will come and put cones around it, and they'll come put a little fence around it so you don't fall in and become like one of the mammoths that got stuck in there. But LA is literally sitting on tons of tar and methane and all sorts of crazy stuff, right? So the oil companies were here and the automotive companies that depended on them were here and they all funded research into ozone and into Ari Hagen-Smith's theory to disprove it. And they funded it and funded it and they said, listen, ozone is coming. We're going to fund your fund your study to prove that ozone is coming from the atmospheric layers above and it's kind of raining down on us naturally. Well, several studies disproved that theory, especially tests showing that the Channel Islands off the coast of LA showed no ozone presence whatsoever. If you're unfamiliar, that's like Santa Catalina and, um, God, I can't even remember the names of the Channel Islands. I just, I don't know Catalina cause I went there for the Catalina Grand Prix, but we have a bunch of islands right off the coast. Um, I think Santa Cruz and Santa Maria, stuff like that. And there are wild islands where no cars are and yeah, there's no ozone out there. So it's only in the city where stuff's happening. Right. So that, that proved that to be wrong. Plus several of the studies that he did said, Hey, listen, we're making ozone by, Uh, having a sunny environment and putting all this crap in the air. So after a deadly cloud of smog settled over London in 1952, killing 4,000 people and limiting visibility to three feet, three freaking feet, you can't run down the street or you smash into some meat. Um, California jumped into action. 1952, 4,000 people, that's more than the uh, 9-11 terrorist attacks killed, and it, it was a self-created uh, 
thing. So, I mean, this is nuts. I, I didn't even know this happened. I always think of like, hey, the 50s, you know, you got the 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 Cronkdells and the 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 skanking hooties over there in England, like doing the 1950s rock and roll thing. I didn't know 4,000 people died because of a freaking smoke cloud killed them settling over London. It's probably what the London fog's about, right? Anyways, if you ever uh, skip forward a little bit, if you ever buy a motorcycle from California and notice that the gas cap is different or that there's like a weird carbon canister with a bunch of hoses that are going to the fuel tank, that's because of the Beckman Committee regulations. In 1953, the Beckman Committee for, uh, forced fuel refineries and storage facilities to s- seal up storage tanks to prevent the evaporation of thousands of gallons of gas into the atmosphere. I don't know if they just had them out there in big open top cisterns where you could just go take a drinking straw or garden hose and siphon out. <laughs> you go there at night and siphon out some gas. I don't know how they were storing them before, but apparently thousands of gallons were just evaporating into the atmosphere. And here in SoCal, where it's hot like 372 days out of the year, I'm sure evaporation was happening every day. I can't believe how much gas was wasted, you know? Um, Also, vehicles had tailpipe emission standards set. Yeah, fuel pumps have to have, had to have a, a sealed rubber boot with some vacuum lines to recapture the fuel vapors. And at first those boots were hard, but nowadays if you come to, uh, if you come to California, you'll notice we have like a little rubber boot over the gas pumps. And when you put it to your car, it like performs a perfect seal. No no gas um, goes out. And they actually have little vacuum lines inside that suck uh, vapors back in. If you have a motorcycle, it's sometimes hard to fill up. If you have any questions on how to fill up your motorcycle here in California, because you've never done it with our stupid gas pumps before, call me. Uh, Junkie Turdman, 555-JUNK. Um, so anyways, it, yeah, the, the, uh, the boots here, they go over your, they go over your, uh, gas tank. And when you're filling up your motorcycle, usually you can see the vapors like evaporating right out of it. And so of course, cars and bikes from California also have that weird canister to recapture vapors as the fuel in your tank gets hot and expands or tries to evaporate. And, uh, this summer I would go in the garage and it was always smell like gas. The air getting so hot, the gas was expanding, the gas is vaporizing, and some of it's leaking out somewhere, venting to the atmosphere, but a lot of it goes through the hoses to those canisters. That's what they're for. Keep it, keep, uh, can't keep all of it from evaporating, but you keep some of it from evaporating, right? So, anyways, in the 19th, so, so California vehicles sometimes have a lot of bit different, uh, equipment on them. And, um, there are 49 state and 50 state, uh, vehicles, uh, still made in the 1960s. Catalysts like cadmium and platinum were awarded to the top singers with the highest selling out. Oh, that's wrong. That's wrong. Cadmium and platinum, just to name a few were chemicals that were introduced into this device and tailpipes, not really a device, just like a kind of a chamber, uh, into tailpipes that converted nitrogen oxide to water, basically. And sometimes uh, you may see a puff of steam from your exhaust, or when you park it, you might see water dripping out of it. Hey, that's a catalytic converter, and it's doing its job. It changes a lot of the hydrocarbons and nitrogen oxide into water. So, yay, it, it has a chemical reaction there um, and drips out water. And so, the puff of steam is when the water is getting hot and you give it the beans and shoot some steam out your pipe. And when you park and everything's cold, it just drips the water out. So yeah, that started happening. So let's get back to the 1970s. The 1970s come along, the federal government 
starting to phase lead out of gasoline. I mean, that didn't happen all the way until like the mid-90s, but they start. Early refiners at the end of the century knew that lead was poisonous, given that there were literally mad hatters around. And uh, I didn't mention it here, but I think in 1915, there was like 24 lead-related deaths in New Jersey at some refinery there. And they're like, oh. So people exposed to lead uh, often had behavioral issues, poor health, black teeth, learning disabilities. Their children had birth defects. Sometimes they had cancer, and sometimes they outright died, just like those people that worked at the refinery did. Yet, it stabilized gas and stopped engine knocking. That was a big deal in the 1920s when rough-running, clunky engines coupled with super crappy suspension made driving a car about as desirable as riding a jackhammer, right? So lead stopped the knocking, it stopped the rough-running, and it was cheaper than any other additives. Cheaper, not safer. So you got it. Since the very beginning, oil companies have put profit before people, even their own workers at some point. And leaded gas was finally banned for general consumption in 1996 by the renewed Clean Air Act or the clean, amended Clean Air Act. So removing lead was the first step toward clean air, but there was also the unburnt hydrocarbons. So the city of LA, way back in the day, and later California, they would go a step further, I think in the late 60s or early 70s, by reducing the amount of olefins in gasoline, which is a photoreactive chemical uh, that, that I think it creates ozone. They would also require smog control equipment to be installed, maintained, and inspected on vehicles. And this later became known as California's smog check program. It's still in place today. It's required every two years on cars, but not motorcycles. And uh, these devices, they basically keep vapors from escaping to the atmosphere. And they also reroute unburnt hydrocarbons back into your intake manifold where they're reburnt. So um, sometimes there's stuff going to the intake. Sometimes there's stuff going from the fuel tank to the canister. They all do different things. Um, and there's some, some bikes have reed valves on the heads that suck stuff in, you know, I mean, that also stops backfiring when you get off the throttle, but there are extra tubes here in California that send blow by gases and stuff back into the manifold to get reburnt. So, so did Biden, did Richard Nixon or did California increase the price of gas? Cause now we got three culprits. All of these changes to petroleum handling were already underway to counteract the deadly smog clouds and unbreathable air crippling the city centers and industrial areas across the developed world. So did creating the EPA as a means to enforce those laws cause refiners to implement more costly production processes? Did they pass that on the consumer? To you and me, we paying higher prices of the gas because California back in 1943? Short answer is no. <laughs> a little thing called supply and demand is what governs fuel prices. And just like any other industry, stakeholders can form alliances within that industry to agree upon prices and control supply of that group's goods or services. Uh, these stakeholders and these groups are called cartels. Cartels exist in the diamond trade. They exist in the olive and grape industries. And guess what? They exist in petroleum oil too. And one of the major cartels in the oil industry is OPEC, uh, or the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. I just learned that there's an A in there now. The A in the acronym denotes that all the countries are Arab, so Venezuela must be out of OPEC now, and it's, it's OAPEC. So in 1967, as America was having this 
summer of love on the West Coast and the long, hot summer full of race riots on the East Coast, Israel did a fun, fun thing, and they invaded Egypt in what's called uh, the Six-Day War or the Third Arab-Israeli War. There's a lot of Arab-Israeli wars. Israel was kind of nuts. So basically, the Suez Canal got closed down in 67, and there was another war called the Yom Kippur War in 1973 where Egypt decided to attack Israel uh, back. And this would cause Nixon, who was now president, to request $2.2 billion to support Israel in the war, partially because Egypt was kind of siding with Russia and we didn't want the whole communism thing has always been a problem and sort of a, a global catastrophe happening with us and other countries. And so is, if Egypt's going to side with Russia, we need to stop the commie movement. $2.2 billion for Israel to uh, win this war. And naturally, OPEC didn't like that. They cut oil production and they put embargoes on oil to the United States or they put embargoes on the United States and anyone supporting Israel, which included Canada, Japan, the Netherlands, Great Britain, and a few other people. So up until that point, gas hadn't changed in price much. Up until 1973 in the Yom Kippur, even through the uh, Six Days War and the closing of the Suez Canal, which is closed for eight years, by the way, uh, we didn't really rely on that much on gas from them. We kind of were producing our own, but it was exactly at that point that we quit. And I didn't put that in my notes for this article, but that's exactly what we were going through. People were telling Nixon, he or uh, was it Nixon? I think it was uh, uh, Johnson. It was His program was called the Drain America First, uh, and nobody liked that we were pumping our own oil. Well, the 1973 came around, and guess what? People... Uh, we're pretty sad, I bet you, because we're going to find out that 73 was a crazy year. So up until that point, like I said, gas hadn't changed much in price. It started out at 21 cents in 1929, which actually in 29, that was probably like $45. But actually, it only rose by a half a cent a year. So by 1973, the national average was a whopping 39 cents, not not even double of what it was in 1929. You went all those years with the only rising about a half a cent a year, right? So after the uh, 1973 oil embargo by OPEC, however, gasoline prices nearly doubled and the price of oil rose 300%. Uh, The embargo lasted less than a year, but guess what? Prices stayed elevated and they have never come back down. The result was an oil crisis in the USA and 1973 saw gas stations with long lines and no gas signs. And it only caused chaos, you know, not only chaos at the pumps, but also the global economic and political problems. Like it was a, it was a crazy thing. Um, and that's when they learned that oil could be used as a weapon against the West when this happened. And if you look, if you go back to and look at the, uh, 1973 oil crisis. You'll see lines of people like miles long down the uh, down the street, and you can only get like a cup of gas. And cars took a cup of gas just to start back in those days. It was nuts. So you can see the demand for better running, fuel efficient. You know all this crazy stuff that we think of as crappy. Today. Oh, why why can't we have like you know. V8s, they get six miles to the gallon. Well, it all started because of this. And we don't want to get in this spot again, right? So, well, there was another oil crisis in 1979. Spoiler alert, if you go back in time and then go forward, 
there's a spoiler. Uh, the Iranian Revolution happened in 1979, and oil prices again skyrocketed like crazy. Uh, they dropped through the 1980s, but they never returned to those pre-73 prices. They uh, Ever since that first embargo, they've always and only been on the rise. So in 2020, when COVID hit, guess what? Oil dropped to $20 a barrel for the first time in 20 years. Thanks, COVID, you did that. So that sticker of Sleepy Joe on the pump, it's a complete and total farce. It's blaming, you know, as is blaming Nixon, California, the EPA, any of these people. The people who are to blame are always and have always been the executives and shareholders who keep making profits in the billions during woeful economic times, whether the times are good or bad. They're just making these crazy profits. And it's not always Jane or Joe Schmo footing the build. You know, you and me, you know, and riding motorcycles or driving a Ford F950 that takes $700 to fill it up. Amazon, UPS, DHL, FedEx, all the airlines, any trucking companies, construction, all these, all those guys had to pay for fuel too, and they have to pay for the higher stuff, right? So they they also get reamed when prices go up, and that makes online uh, retail and shipping they definitely rose to a new high over the last couple of years. But it's way easier to call out the leader of the free world than it is to figure out where your gas comes from and then go full Karen on a board of directors and investors. It's easier to just point the finger at one person. So in the end, getting mad at the oil companies also, you know, we like to point the finger at the Prez because if we get mad at the oil companies, it's almost like getting mad at ourselves for loving internal combustion death machines that we embrace with every fiber of our being, right? So no matter who is to blame for gas prices, uh, being on the rise, one thing's for sure. Every time gas prices spike in the U.S., motorcycle and scooter prices and now uh, e-bike sales coincide. So one good thing out of this is that we may get more riders out of it. The bad thing is that we're not getting this. We're, we're still suffering a lot of logistic and supply <laughs> problems since COVID. And uh, there's a lot of 2022 bikes that haven't even hit showroom floors yet, and they're advertising 23s. Folks, we got a problem on our hands. So after the break, we'll take a quick peek into the gasoline that we love so much and find out what it is and see if it is worth the triple price increases at the pump this uh, and last summer or this, this whole summer. So thanks, Junkie. You did that. All right, we'll be right back with some more creative writing. For over 131 years and several months, Clodman's has been supplying quality pickles to motorcyclists the world over. Legendary icons such as Sylvester Roper, Oscar Hedstrom, William Harley, Betsy Stringfield, Frank Willoughby Cotton, Evil Knievel, Nikki Hayden, and Sachiro Honda have all quenched their desires for a thick, juicy pickle sliding across their greasy, willing lips with none other than a fine specimen from Clopins. Join the Hall of Fame, win your first race, impress the judges, put a Clopins in your mouth, and a championship trophy on your shelf. Clobmans, not for dreamers, for doers. Clobmans, the only pickle for motorcyclists. 
everybody. You heard it at the beginning of the show. Visit MimiAndMoto.com where you can purchase Mark and Nancy's motorcycle books, The Adventures of Mimi and Moto, and Mimi and Moto Ride the Alphabet along with some t-shirts, onesies, ornaments, and plushies for this holiday season. And stay tuned as Nancy and Mark are working on a new chapter book called Mimi and Moto's Magical Meteors First Gear, which will be released early in 2023. That's MimiAndMoto.com today. All right, everybody. I know you're just as anxious as I am to eat a rotten block of cheese and smash a tomato into your mouth. Wait, wait a minute. I'm just talking about my new diet. (laughs) Look at me. Uh, No, now we are going to talk a little bit about what's in the fuels that we love so much. Gasoline, octane, and other fun jazz. So now that we know that gasoline is super fun and it's an inclusive commodity that no one wages wars over, how about finding out what the hell's in it, okay? So first, let's talk about gasoline and talk about octane. What is octane and why do I see all these numbers on the fuel pumps? Well, first first questions first, first answer first. Uh, first debate first, what octane should I put in my motorcycle? No, we'll get to that later. Uh, first off, what is octane? Well, octane is defined by the awkward, awkward, (laughs) yes, the awkward language dictionary. That's the one I'm going to write the Oxford language dictionary as a colorless flammable hydrocarbon of the alkane series obtained in petroleum refining. So you get octane from refining petroleums. So octane can define any of several isomeric liquid alkanes from pentane to actually octane, but isooctane is the main component in gasoline. Early gasoline engines tended to knock and run rough, as we discussed, and in 1921, engineers at General Motors discovered that lead reduced engine knock. Benzene and ethanol were also available at the time, but lead was way cheaper. So we'll talk about some of this stuff. So what about this knocking? What about this lead reducing the knocking, right? So knock is important to an octane rating because that's the numbers that you see on the pumps, at least in the USA. They're known as AKI, or anti-knock index ratings. Uh, And the numbers on the fuel pumps in Europe, they're often higher, but that's due to labeling. We'll talk about that in uh, right, right now. So there's two ways to measure octane. One is the research octane and one's the motor octane. And we'll talk about research octane first. So there's this compound, it's called heptane. It will ignite under the heat from compression alone. It easily ignites. You just start to compress it and just the atoms moving around and the pressure, it'll ignite uh, very, 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 very easily. Octane or isooctane, on the other hand, takes a lot of pressure and a lot of heat to combust, and therefore heptane is given an octane rating of zero, while octane is given a rating of 100. So if fuel has a 5% heptane, super volatile compound, to 95% isooctane, which is a little bit harder to compress, then it's considered 95% octane. So whatever the isooctane mix is, is what it is. If you have a 10% heptane and 90% uh, isooctane, then it's 90 octane. So Europe uses this number on their pumps for the most part. Motor octane is a measurement 
derived by loading an engine at higher RPMs than RON. So RON, let me let me talk about this. The research octane, they also use a motor at lower RPMs and uh, I believe lighter loads, uh, variable compression, um, to get that heptane to combust, you know, and to get the uh, to get the octane rating uh, of the iso octane. So that's the RON. It's kind of like a scientific way to do it. Motor octane is der- derived by loading an actual engine a little bit higher. Uh, RPMs and they vary the timing and when that starts to knock that is where they do their uh, their um, motor octane number it's uh, based off that point that load and it's harder it's a very a little bit harder test than research octane and it usually generates lower numbers so a 95 octane from Ron uh, the research octane just because that heptane to iso-octane mix is 95%, uh, that may present as 87 octane on a motor octane uh, number. So they use a 95% mix, but it still gets a lower rating because on on the motor, it knocks faster, right? So that's how they get RON and MON, and therefore the pumps in the USA, they're an average of the two, and that's why they're not technically the octane. They're the anti-knock index. The next time you're filling up your motorcycle, look at the numbers on the tank. Right above or right near somewhere, you'll see small print. Usually it's above the number that says R plus M slash 2, which is the RON plus MON divided by 2. It's the research octane number plus the motor octane number divided in half, they're giving you the average of the two. So in our example, if we got a 95 research octane number, because it's a 95% uh, iso-octane to heptane mix uh, where the motor starts knocking versus an 87 uh, motor octane number um, where it's under load and it knocks then, we we add those two together, we divide them in half, and we get an anti-knock rating of 91. So basically a 95 uh, research octane number and an 87 motor octane number is a 91 AKI. So that's what you'll see on the pumps here in the States. So you'll say, oh, why does Europe have much higher octanes and better fuels? They don't. They just measure, they, they label them different. They don't measure them different. They label them different. So 95 or 93 RON is 91 AKI. Uh, so 95 and 87, they're the same octane, just different methods of measuring it, and the AKI is 91. So now you know how to measure octane or AKI, at least here in the States. So what do the actual numbers mean? Well, putting 91 or 93 AKI, which is like 93 or 98 octane in my bike, make me blow away the competition at the drag strip or pop unintentional wheelies down Main Street and get handcuffed and throw to jail? No. And it actually might do the opposite depending on your elevation. We'll talk about that in a minute. So a fuel's octane rating or AKI has nothing to do with the fuel's power potential. All fuel is the exact same. The only thing those numbers mean is that it's the fuel's resistance to combustion. So the higher number the less resistant to pre-ignition and knocking it is. That's it. They're all the same. They all have the same amount of stored energy. They all produce the same, uh, quote, power. It's just your motor that runs on it is what you need to think about. So imagine, well, let's do this. Imagine what might happen if you have a super high compression sport bike and you put low octane fuel in it. The fuel is constantly going to ignite on the compression stroke before the piston even reaches the top and the spark plug fires, right? 
And so you're going to hear actual knocking. And if you're not sure why that's bad, let's just say that an, an explosion is going to force your piston back down as it's coming up and it can find a metal cylinder. If you can't see what's wrong about that, well, a few things can happen and none of them are good. I mean, the goal of an internal combustion engine is for an explosion to force the piston back down, but after it's reached the top of the stroke. And don't give me crap about timing. I'm talking about piston travel, not timing. I can already hear the before top dead center trolls making a bunch of commotion already. We're talking about actual pistons. So you don't want your piston to be forced back down on its way back up. Imagine you're going to go punch a bad guy in the face and some magic, uh, uh, magic, force pushes your hand back, you know, before it even got extended, you're going to pull some muscles, you might break some bones, you know, all that fun stuff. So the last bit of octane relates directly to the first part of this podcast and health and clean fuels and hydrocarbons, all that crap. Okay. Henry Ford, believe it or not, designed the first Model T to run on ethanol, but gasoline was much cheaper. So they just went with it, right? And lead and all that fun stuff was cheaper. Since that time, lead Other aromatics have been added to fuel to increase the octane. And after lead was phased out, I think completely in 1996, except for like race gas and some other stuff, they used methyl tertiary butyl ether or MTBE. It was added to oxygenate fuels and reduce the ground level ozones. Well, MTBE later raised some health concerns and I found out firsthand that it also eats through fiberglass because it ate through my friend's uh, CB750 race tank and uh, delaminated it from the inside. And I looked at the tank and I realized I didn't think I could fix it. I read up on MTBE before even trying the repair on the tank and I found out it erodes resins, delaminates fiberglass, and eats other th- other chemicals. So since it had soaked through the layers from the inside out, that tank was a goner. And so was MTBE. It kind of got into the uh, uh, drinking water and stuff like that. So the EPA began to phase that out almost as soon as it came in. Then there was BTEX, which was the benzene, tuolene, uh, ethylbenzene, and xylene. So BT. E-X. Um, and BTEX, that hasn't lasted very long either after some more health concerns um, noted from exposure to benzene. So I, I mentioned that benzene, ethanol, and lead were available uh, at the turn of the century when Henry Ford's making Model Ts. Benzene, who knew exposure to chemicals like that was bad for humans on many levels? Well, well, well. So benzene, not so great for you. So it's probably good they didn't use it way back then. So now we're back to ethanol, the OG oxygen that was available way back at the turn of the century, hundreds, hundred years ago, 1921, 1922. Yeah. hundred years ago, this stuff is available and it comes from cane, like sugar cane or corn and ethanol isn't as bad for your health as other distilled chemicals. Um, about 95% of gas in the United States is a 10% blend of ethanol. There was a cool study done way back in the 80s that tested a few different uh, fuels, including methanol, ethanol, regular unleaded, and then all all a bunch of blends therein, like within those. And all of the studies showed that methanol actually was pretty awesome. It was very, very clean, but it wore parts out pretty pretty quick. No lubrication in there, uh, alcohol-based. It wore parts a lot faster. After 20 hours, it wore parts way more than obviously unleaded gasoline. There was on the two ends of the spectrum. But ethanol didn't wear so bad. And ethanol at a 10% ratio with gas 
was even better, and in some cases was cleaner than the unleaded gas, and it didn't leave water in the oils. Uh, and the water was negligible for all of those. I mean, imagine years and years and years it might build up, but water was negligible. So that's how they found out that this 10% ethanol blend is pretty good. Uh, and it was actually cleaner and left fewer deposits and burned the hydrocarbons. I did read this crazy study on ethanol uh, that... Um, Ethanol isn't fuel, isn't as energy dense as gas. So you actually need more ethanol than gas to get a burn or something like that. So you actually use more gas when you're running ethanol or use more ethanol, something like that to get that burn. But it, it evaporates faster. And when it evaporates, it's not as volatile. So it's not that bad so far. We'll probably see in like 20 years. Like ethanol was terrible. Anyways, so it cleans out. Since it is alcohol based, it cleans out some of the deposits that just running unleaded by itself has left behind. So it's a perfect mix. And if you've got a newer bike, it's not bad. Running vehicles on this stuff, even in the 80s on carbureted uh, vehicles, didn't show much wear to the metal parts. Now, I don't know about the rubber parts. I know some people that we've talked to on the show, we talked to Chris Singsheim a while back, and he said his bike ran pretty good, like on E85 or e e something E5. 15, I forget what he was running. He said it ran awesome, but it did eat up the gaskets and it ate up some other stuff on it. So yeah. So careful, careful. What should you run? Now that we're now that we learned what octane is, what the what the ratings are, and uh all the cool stuff they put in gas to make it cleaner. There's a bunch of additives also, proprietary additives here and there that we won't get into and they they won't tell us. I'll get killed. You know, they'll they'll kill me if I tell you the gas secrets. But what should you run? Well, if you have a new fuel-injected bike, you should run what the owner's manual says. The electronics measure any variables and make adjustments for you. But if you have a carbureted bike, like a turbocharged, super high-performance bike, crazy advanced timing, you might could run on E85, which has an octane up to 108 or, or like 105, so, something like that. It will allow you to run high compression and super advanced timing without fuel combustion under pressure. Um, but most fuel-injected vehicles will have to, would have to be modified to run on that level of ethanol. I think you could get away with it with the carburation. But once you go to fuel injection and it has to read sensors and has to be tuned to that, like you really, I don't think it's worth it. And I, I think the flex fuel vehicles are designed specifically around that stuff, right? And they have all a bunch of computers on board that deal with that. However, you can't just put that stuff in a regular fuel injected vehicle. You might be able to get away with it in a super carbureted, uh, high performance vehicle. I wouldn't run it on a non, non-performance vehicle, uh, cause you probably never ignite the fuel, <laughs> but if you have a carb bike and you're going to be riding at high elevations, you should be using the lowest octane available. And this is because where the barometric pressure is lower, like the air is thinner, you need the fuel to combust more easily. And again, fuel injected vehicles, they have computers to figure out the variables. You should not use lower, uh, even if it's available at altitude, if you have a fuel injected vehicle, you should just run what your owner's manual says. And what about premium, the good stuff, the highest octanes, the stuff that's going to make your bike just rip its wheel, back wheel off as you get on the throttle? Well, if your bike calls for it, use it. Otherwise, it's not more powerful or energy dense. It's just more expensive. And as we learned, that number just means that it's less combustible. It uh, doesn't combust uh, due to pressure. It combusts when the... Um, 
uh, you know, when the, 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 uh, spark plug ignites That's what I'm trying to say. So, so you're wasting your money. If you have an old carved bike that's air cooled and it runs really hot in the summer and you get some knocking or you think your engine temps being super high might be causing knocking, then it's okay to run 93 or 91 till the temps cool off. But if you just have a low compression, low RPM cruiser, you're better off running whatever the manufacturer calls for, not putting 91 in your bike. And no matter what the temp or altitudes or any of that, if you're fuel injected, just read what the owner's manual says and only use the minimum octane required. Remember, the numbers don't mean more power. They just mean resistance to knocking. And with that, we're going to wrap up the show. We've already kept you guys uh, so long. Thank you for sticking around. Thank you for learning about fuel. Thank you for learning about the year 1967. And uh, thanks for listening to the uh I did that podcast episode 281 from creative writing creative writing is available on apple Podcasts, soundcloud stitcher google play tune in spotify etc 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 leave the show a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app you can always check out our blog creative-writing.com go check it out look at the uh, the link there for Mimi and Moto on the page below the events. Uh, you can contact us at creativewritingpodcast at gmail.com. You can always find us on Facebook and Instagram at Creative Writing Podcast. We're on Reddit at creative underscore writing. Don't go to regular creative writing. You're going to get a terrible surprise. And you can all support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash creative writing. Thank you, everybody. Hope you have a great week. Get out there, ride, um, abide. And don't died. Thank you, uh, Bethesda, Maryland, Frankfurt on Main, Germany, Fort Pierce, Florida, New York, New York, Salt Lake City, Utah, and every other city that's listened to us. Uh, it's, it's only giving me the, the top cities here. So thank you, everybody that's been listening and tuning in from the U.S., Australia, Canada, uh, Arkansas, which is his own, own country, and a couple other places. All right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. Tobor may be back next week if he's a good boy. And uh, take it easy. Bye.